Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome back. I'm so glad that you've joined us. For those of you that are here in the sanctuary, welcome. And it's good to see people in seats again, to have faces and people to talk to. For those of you that are tuning in online or wherever you're viewing this from, welcome to you. And for anyone out on the lawn tonight, just a a great welcome. It's just good to be back fellowshipping together, to be in the presence of other Christians, to be able to converse and catch up and see how what everyone looks like with long hair. It is, uh, and I did this myself. I didn't break the law, but you you can't see the back, so it kind of works, you know. Um, But anyways, a great big welcome to you. Uh, We're in our final study tonight in Matthew's Gospel, Studies in Matthew, Why It Matters. So if you have your Bible, your mobile device, open it to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, for our time in the Word. And again, I just want to remind you guys that the, the, the tent is set up outside the solid ground, and there was probably about 70 people out there on Sunday, and it was just a delight. It's, a, it's kind of the 9 a.m. service only still at this time, so it's not hot yet, but yet it's refreshing. It's kind of cool to just worship out there. I sat out there with my family, my kids on the blanket playing with some Legos. It's just nice to be around Christians and then to be able to fellowship and not uh, have to worry about too much um, you know, closeness and in infection and all that kind of thing. So just know that that's available. We're doing church on the lawn on Wednesday nights as well until hmm, we'll see what happens as the, the nights start to get darker, maybe later on in July and we'll reassess. But uh, for now, still just the 9 a.m. service on Sunday. Wednesday is just the same going right through. Um, but let's uh, get into the word together tonight. It's Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16, the last paragraph of Matthew's gospel Matthew writes, and he says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he spoke unto them, saying, All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and we know that we're approaching the holy word of God that doesn't fade away, it doesn't come back void, it's powerful and living, and it's effective in our lives. Lord, you're the one who spoke it then, and we're asking that tonight you would speak it again. We ask that you would breathe on your word by your Holy Spirit, that you would breathe upon our hearts, that you would tune us in to hear your voice. Oh, Lord, we want to hear from you, and we want to serve you. And so we ask you, Lord, that you would please move into this space right now, move into our hearts, into this time. And I pray that you would anoint my words, this message, in our hearts as we go forward, Lord. Please help us to hear your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start tonight with a little bit of a a fun challenge. It's not so much interactive, but I'm going to read to you a series of mission statements from a few companies or organizations, and I'm going to pause and I'm just going to give you a second or two to guess what company is attached to the mission statement that I read. Here we go. Here's number one. It is to bring the best user experience to customers through innovative hardware, software, and services. Just a clue. It's not Rubbermaid. If you guessed Apple, you're right. Number two, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Oh, I'm hearing it in the sanctuary. Google, that's right, it's Google. Number three, we ignite opportunity by setting the world in motion. This one's a little harder. It's Uber. And then number four, finally, to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. That's a little bit scary if you pay attention to phrasing and understand what's behind it, but the answer is Tesla, Elon Musk's company. You know, mission statements. Now, here's the fact of the matter, the truth, is that people 
organizations, companies, or ministries that affect change in the world and change people's lives have these four things. Number one is they have a burden. They have a reason. There is something that they're trying to accomplish that's moving them in a direction. Burden gives birth to number two, which is a vision. That is the hope of a solution of meeting a need, a vision for what can be in spite of what is, which then leads to number three, it turns into a mission. And that is the act of turning a vision into reality. And then usually number four, the mission is driven by a leader or a team or a group of passionate, united people that are committed to the mission. And that is universally true about any effective thing that exists within the world, even if it's not defined. Now, every effective purpose has a clearly defined mission. And that definition, the mission defined, serves to inform, guide, and sustain like a compass or an anchor. If you've ever interviewed for a job, so you've gone uh, to a company or you've been recruited, the very first thing that a company will do in an interview process or in an orientation is that they will hand you a sheet of paper usually that has the words mission statement somewhere written on it, and you will see what is the guiding principle of that organization or institution or business. Now, we here are talking about the kingdom of God. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew. It is Jesus heralding the kingdom. That's phraseology that is seldom used throughout the Old Testament concerning God's work on the earth. Usually when you talk about the kingdom in Old Testament context, you're talking about the nation of Israel, which had a king, a kingdom. But Jesus is heralding a kingdom which is broader, which is otherworldly. And Matthew's motive in writing his gospel is to introduce and make known that kingdom through the ministry of Jesus. Now, Jesus kind of attaches a new word to that concept in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he uses the word church. It's one of the few times the word is actually used in the New Testament. He says that upon this rock, I will build my church. And so the burden is God's. And the burden is to seek and to save, to teach and to train lost people. That's what God wants. That's what's moving his heart. That's the motive behind what will be the mission. The vision that God has for his church and his kingdom is to build a kingdom of citizens called saints that are blood-bought with the blood of Christ, spirit-filled, united, devoted love machines. That is God's vision for his kingdom. The leader of his kingdom is none other than Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, the one who declares that all authority has been given to him. And his mission is to birth and then build the church, according to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Upon this rock, my death and resurrection, my authority, my Christhood, my kingship, upon this rock, I will build my church. That is the mission. Now, the last paragraph of Matthew's gospel is the mission statement of the church. It is what would be handed to you should you become a Christian and you're in orientation and Jesus says, this is my mission. This is what I'm all about. Some have called it the great commission because, and you see the word mission tucked right in there, you know, because he's giving us the mission statement, what it is that he's all about. And this is what I want you to understand tonight is that if you are saved on June 10th, 2020, right now, then this is the mission that's been handed to you by Jesus himself. This is our mission. It's what he's given to us. Now, let's interpret it briefly, all right? If Jesus were to hand this to you, and if this was your orientation to the mission that you are called to, what is this consist of? What is the mission that Jesus has for his church? It has 
four basic tenets that you can see right in the text right there. Number one is evangelism. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The act of baptism is the act of bringing someone to a conversion experience where their old sinful man is buried and the new man that's formed in the person of Christ is resurrected out of the waters. And that is a part, a tenet of his mission to seek and to save the lost. That's what baptism implies. The second tenet is discipleship, or to say it another way, teaching or training. And you see that word used twice in the Great Commission. Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And then after giving the command to baptize, he then says, teaching them after you have won them to salvation, now teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. All right, now he uses the word teach twice, but he uses a different word for teach in each of those two times. The first time when he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, the word in the Greek means to be a pupil or a student in the classroom. It's the Greek word mathete. Ooh-oh. That doesn't matter, but I just wanted to prove to you that there is actually two different words. Okay, but it means to be a pupil or a book learner. So a student of the word, what you're doing right now, in a sense, is you are learning the concepts. You're in the classroom, so to speak. But then the other word that Jesus uses when he says teaching them to observe, it's a different word. It's the Greek word didasko, and that means to teach by impartation or literally to teach by example, to teach by demonstrating through your life what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means, what it looks like to observe the things that he has said, what it looks like to have the spirit of God living inside your heart and moving you in a direction and according to his purpose in his will. And so teach uh, evangelism and then discipleship and then number three, the third tenet of this mission is relationship. It's the last statement that Jesus uses when he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Meaning that while we are on mission, as long as we are here in the world, he is not in heaven directing, dictating, and observing, but he is actually not just with us alongside, but he is with us internally by the person and presence of his spirit. Meaning that he's the one that's guiding, he's leading, he's instructing, he's helping, he's teaching. He's with us as we not only grow, but as we fulfill the plan and the call that he has for us as his servants. That's the third tenet, relationship. And then the fourth tenet of this is that we are under and in his authority. That's the first statement. That's primal. He says that all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. He says, this is what you're to do. And I am the one who is sending you. I'm the one that's deploying you. I'm the one that's empowering you. I'm the one that's asking this of you. It's my authority. And so I'm asking you to submit to that authority and then to operate in the power of that authority. And that is the great commission, the mission statement of the church. Now, it is the most brilliant mission statement that anyone could ever formulate for the church in terms of saying what it needs to say and leaving out what doesn't need to be said. It's perfect. It is both narrowly focused and it is extremely abstract. In other words, it's narrow enough to keep everyone focused, anchored, and aimed, knowing exactly what we're about, but yet it's abstract enough to make us all feel clueless, <laughs> right? Like, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't understand what you're talking about. It's clear enough that we know what we're to do, but what's absent from it is the answer to the question of where do I fit in this mission of things and how do I do what it is that he's asked me to do? 
Now, the brilliance of Jesus leaving it like that is that he makes it universally applicable because it's simple enough that it keeps all of us on target, but yet it's abstract and broad enough that it's universally available. Every one of us finds a place within this mission. And so here is the big question that's before us as we look at the mission statement of the church and seek to apply it to our lives and ask the question, why does this matter to me? And the question is, where do I fit? What is my place? What is my call and my part? And how do I find it? And how do I fulfill it? One of the things that amazes me about Jesus and about the New Testament is how seldom method is defined. Often God gives directives, but he doesn't explain methodology behind it. In fact, the only time that I can find Jesus telling us how we're to do something is when he was asked the question of how do we pray? And and how do we pray? And twice Jesus answered that question. He was asked it on two separate occasions. He answered it the same way on two separate occasions. But otherwise, he says very little about how we're to go about fulfilling his commands. He says, cast out demons. He doesn't tell us how to do it. He says, go preach. But he never gives us how to outline or prepare a message or give a sermon. He's telling us to do things, but he doesn't always say how. Why is that? Here's why. Because it leaves it open for him to operate according to the uniqueness and individuality of each one of us. And it also makes it so that the way that we fulfill what he's given us to do is acceptable before him without being judged or condemned by other people. But how do we discover this mission as it applies to our lives? We know that it is possible. And that's the title of the message tonight, is that this is mission possible. It's possible for anyone at any time in any culture and at any level of life to fulfill this mission. But there's four things that I want to give you tonight briefly in this message that will help you to discover and do and be massively effective in what it is that God wants to use you for in fulfilling this message. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these things down. Number one, if you want to be effective and discover and do what Jesus has called us to do in this mission, is that you've got to dive in. You've got to dive in. In 2002, there was a movie that came out called Mission Impossible 2. And I confess I did not see the movie, but I have heard the famous line from it. And... Mission Commander Swanbeck gave the mission to Ethan Hunt. He told him what he was to do. It was a challenging mission. It was life or death that he would fulfill it or not. And after giving him the mission, he said to him, he said, this is your mission should you choose to accept it. And you've got to understand that Jesus hands us this mission statement, but he does not require any of us to take it. That is our choice, our responsibility to listen to what he says and to dive in and accept the call that he has given to us. He doesn't force us to do it. But I will say this. It is what Jesus is into. He is into his kingdom, building his kingdom and fulfilling his mission. That's what he's into. And if you want to be walking in tandem with him, If you want to experience what we call purpose and destiny and life abundantly, then that is going to come as you and I respond to and embrace this call to get into the mission. But it is our responsibility to do it. Good luck finding abundant life, purpose, destiny, all those great things that God gives to us outside of accepting his mission. And each Christian must come to the watershed moment where you ask yourself the question, is my life mine or is it his? Do I want my will for my life or do I want his will for my life? Do I really trust him that if I yield myself completely to his will for my life, that that is the best choice that I can make to do with the time I have on earth?
If you want to expand on this, I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to put the passage, the reference up on for you to see it. Read Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 6, and it'll stay up there for just a moment so that you can either take a real good mental picture of that and you can read it in your devotions tomorrow. You can write it down and make it a point to read that because it is an amazing illustration of what it means to dive in to embracing the mission that Jesus has for his church, for you and for me. But it's essential that we do it. Number two, if you want to discover, you want to move in, you want to know his will, is that you've got to not just dive in, but you've got to move out. You have got to move out. Do you see the first word that Jesus uses in this commission right after declaring his authority? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. And then what does he say? What's the first word? Go. He says, go. And that is huge because it is the most how describing word that he gives in this whole thing is that you are just to go, start moving. It implies action. It implies motion. It implies movement. And it is important. And to say it another way, it is Jesus' answer to the question of how do we do this? His answer would be go. How do we fulfill this mission? Go. How do I discover your will for my life? Go. How do I discover my place in this whole big picture of things? Go is the answer. Just start doing. Now, I want to confess that for years, when I read the Great Commission, I kind of had a picture or a thought in my mind of what it meant. Jesus said, go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing, teaching, instructing. I thought it meant street witnessing. That's the mission. The mission is go out on the streets, wear one of those sandwich boards that says, turn or burn, and tell everyone, repent or die. That's, and, and that is not my personality. It doesn't fit with me. It doesn't go well with me. It's awkward for me. But I thought that was the commission. And I thought, okay, well, that's what Jesus wants me to do. But I don't know if I can live up to that, measure up to it. Listen, we often think that the Great Commission, if I accept it, it means go be a missionary. It means go start a Bible study. It means go plant a church. Now, all of those things are good things, but that's not entirely all of what it means. It's not necessarily what it means. I want you to think about this for a minute as we just look at the Bible. What did it mean for God's servants of old throughout the course of God's work in the world, even building his kingdom through Old Testament times, what did it look like for different people to fulfill the Great Commission or to take their place in the Great Commission. For Noah to fulfill the Great Commission meant that he would put on his tool belt every single day and he would do the thing that God asked him to do that didn't look, at any, look anything like being a missionary or planting a church. That was how he fulfilled and became fruitful and built the kingdom for 120 years. For Abraham, fulfilling the Great Commission meant relocating. It meant changing his environment for the influence of his future family. Is that God knew that the way that you are going to be effective in building my kingdom is for you to get out of what's comfortable and familiar and get into a place where I can lead your life in a different dynamic than I can where you are. And for Abraham, go literally meant go, leave Babylon and go to the place that I will show you as you move. That's what it meant. And that's what turned into fruit for his life. For Joseph to fulfill the Great Commission, it meant to learn a new language. And it meant to learn a thing or two about crop farming. And not only did he change the world, but he affected lives even unto this day, building the kingdom of God, fulfilling his part in the Great Commission. For Hagar, to fulfill the Great Commission meant to move out of a toxic situation and to raise her son as a single mother, trusting in God to lead her along the way. And that's what God did for her. For Samuel, to fulfill the Great Commission, it meant to be faithful at a service-level job for a long season while God developed him and moved him forward. For Abigail, to build the kingdom of God, to fulfill the Great Commission was to manage a rich fool's business really well. That's what she did. When you read about Nehemiah, 
for him to fulfill the Great Commission. His role was to build a border wall. He was the foreman. He was the one who made it happen. That was his call. For Esther, believe it or not, to fulfill the Great Commission, for her, it was to learn how to leverage good looks for God-needed goals. That's what she did. You read the book of Esther, and it was for such a time as this, that's what God used in her life. And here's what that means. It means that your place in fulfilling the Great Commission is super broad. There's no way for you to figure out ahead of time how God is going to use your go. He just tells you to go. Your go is not spelled out in fine print, and how God will use it is past your finding out. There was a man um, a, almost 100 years ago named Letourneau, and he was a businessman. He developed and invented heavy equipment. He was, in, he was instrumental in developing a lot of the heavy equipment that is used today. And God got a hold of his life because of camp meetings, revival meetings, itinerant preachers that went from place to place. And as he developed his business, he had a burden in his heart that God would continue to use these things. And he made a commitment that God, as my business develops and grows, I will give you a greater percentage of my income. And his goal was to reverse the tithe. And by the time he was fully established, he was giving away to ministries 90% of what he made, and he was keeping for himself only 10%, and 10% was in the millions. He had a gift of giving, a burden to support camps, and he ended up supporting ministry and fulfilling the Great Commission as a businessman. Another man who, uh, in the early 1990s, his name was Phil Vischer. That name might sound familiar to some of you. And he was in his house and he was testing animation software to develop children's videos. And so he made, with his computer, an animated candy bar. And he showed it to his wife and his wife said, it's a great start, but you'll probably get buy-in from a lot more parents if you make it a little bit more nutritious. And hence, VeggieTales was born. Three Emmys later, four Annies, 13 Dove Awards, six Parent Choice Awards, VeggieTales has sold over 175 million videos. It is the best selling of all time in every genre. It has de there are 16 million books sold, 7 million al albums, and 235 million streams. Because someone who liked computer animation and wanted to do something to reach children, they fulfilled the Great Commission in a very unconventional way. There's a man named Les McEwen, and from the time he's alive today, from the time that he was just a little kid, he had a fascination with businesses. Not running a business himself, but he just loved businesses. And he, it's weird. He would go into a convenience store, and he would just have this understanding of how everything worked in that business, and he would be able to tell if it would last or not. Now, that's crazy for a little kid. Where does that come from? But God got a hold of his heart and realized that that was there for a purpose, and he wrote many books, one of them called Predictable Success, and he's helped many churches, ministries, and God's organizations get a grip on what they're doing and understand what's effective and what's not. And he has moved many Christian organizations and ministries forward and set them on firm ground because God just gave him this ability to understand how organizations function properly. How could you ever guess that? You can't figure it out, but he's fulfilling the Great Commission by what God has placed inside of him. About a half century ago, there was a man named Ed Kimball, and he was asked by his pastor to lead a Sunday school group. And he was timid and afraid to do it, but he wanted to accept the challenge. And not knowing what else to do, he began to pray fervently for each one of his students. And Ed Kimball in the Sunday school class led a man, a young man to the Lord whose name was D.L. Moody. Have you heard of him? D.L. Moody then went on to become a great evangelist, and he led a man to the Lord named Billy Sunday, who became a pastor. Billy Sunday preaching led a man to the Lord named Mordecai Ham, who became a traveling evangelist. And in the midst of his travels, he led a man to Christ whose name was Billy Graham. You ever heard of him? Ed Kimball said yes to teach a Sunday school class, and because he was obedient to do something that to him seemed small and just commit it to God in prayer, 
I can only imagine the amount of fruit that is accumulated to his account in heaven because of just that simple act of obedience. Listen, here's what you've got to understand, is that to know what your place is and how God is going to use you in this fulfilling of his commission, it is not going to come in the mail. It's going to come as you move, as you go forward and watch how God leads your life develops your gifts and your personality, he is going to then form something around you that he will then leverage to fulfill the mission that he has given. But it requires on our part that we move out. We've got to go. We've got to do what he's asked us to do. Number three, not just accept it and move out, but number three is grow up. What did Jesus say? He said, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. Now that implies a continual growth because we never arrive at a place where we are complete on this side of eternity. Every Christian is constantly and always growing. We are moving towards the mark. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I do not count myself to have arrived, but this one thing I do, I press forward towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I don't feel like I've arrived, but I want to get there. And so I'm going to move on forward. I'm growing. And that's what all of us are called to do. We're called to grow. And that means cultivation by impartation. It means iron sharpening iron. It means that we are constantly learning both as pupils in this kind of a context right now. And we are also learning by impartation as we walk alongside those that are further along that we are and we become imitators of their faith as we grow closer to Jesus Christ. Now understand this. There are two different types of gifts that God gives to his people that need to be developed. One type of gift are the ones that are listed in scripture. We call them usually spiritual gifts. Things like prophecy, evangelism, teaching, governing, giving, mercy. They're all listed there in Romans chapter 12. There's another list given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a different type of gifts, manifestations they're called. You know, things like the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, acts of faith, a prayer language. Those are all one type of spiritual gifts. Those are the things that God imparts that have to do with spiritual things. But there's another type of gift that God gives, and those are the natural gifts, the nondescript gifts that God gives to us as human beings made in the image of God that really contribute to our uniqueness. And so those can be just the things that you're good at and the things that you like, but you don't even know why. <laughs> Maybe you don't even know where they came from. They're not even in your family history, but they're there. Those are things from God, gifts from God, and they need to be developed, used, and capitalized on just like everything else. I want to ask you this. What do a sling, a harp, a sword, and common sense all have in common? The answer is King David. <laughs> okay, he was really good with a sling, he was really good with a harp, he was really good with a sword, and he had enough common sense to be a great leader. All of those things were natural gifts from God. Now, I, I know you guys are smart thinking people, okay? A slingshot, a harp, a sword, and common sense. Which one of those four things is not like the others? The harp, right? Let me read you a verse. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 17. It says this. It says that Saul, and that is King Saul, the king at the time, said unto his servants, provide me now a man that can play well, that is play music well, and bring him to me. Then, verse 18, answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, that is David, that is cunning in playing. He's an excellent musician and a mighty and valiant man and a man of war and prudent in manners. He has common sense and he's a comely person. He's decent, handsome, he's well put together. And the Lord is with him. 
Now, that's such an odd thing, right? Like, you're looking for someone, and you say, you know, you got to see this guy. We were out, and we found him, and he, he's, he's handsome. He's kind of the total package. He's smart. He's good with people. He's a warrior. He can fight. You should see him with a sword. He's a black belt in martial arts, and he can play a mean harp. <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind of like, wait, record scratch. Like, and you can almost think, you can almost think that David might think, well, sling, sword, common sense, leader type. I'm going to put all my eggs in the king basket. I'm going to be a leader and a warrior. That's what I'm going to go for. But God gave him this ability to play the harp, and he didn't take it lightly or leave it to the side, but he cultivated even that natural musical inclination that he had to the point where it became excellent and it was important and here's why because if David hadn't first developed musically he never would have become majesty because it was the harp that opened the door for David to come into the palace which led to the beheading of Goliath which led to the sequence of events that ultimately ended with him becoming the king of Israel here's the point the point is that whatever God has given you Whatever interest God has given you, whatever hobby God has given you, whatever it is, do it excellently, develop it and grow it. Because as you go and move in it, God is going to use that in the grand scheme of raising you up and you're going to find yourself in the place where he is making you fruitful. And so it's so important that you become excellent in what it is that God has given you. God is attracted to excellence. And he likes it when we take seriously the things that he has given to us. I want you to just think about this for one minute. Next time you go out and you see a sunset or a sunrise, I want you to give God a grade on what you see. Is it a B minus? Ah, oh, Lord, that's kind of a C plus. You could have done a little bit better. He does the most with what he does. And we are called to do the most with what he has given to us. And thus we are not to coast, we're to continually be growing. We've got to grow. And the number four, not just grow up, but we must root in. We must root in. What does it mean? It means that we settle it in our minds and that we determine that we are under his and moving in his authority that we belong to him, and thus we are in submission to him. Jesus says, all authority is given unto me. You therefore go. He attaches the statement about his authority to his command to us that we're to go. In other words, in order for us to go, even to receive the command, we must submit. But then it's because we're in submission that we now have the power and the permission to do what it is that he's called us to and to do what it is that he has asked of us. I want to read you a few verses concerning the type of authority that Jesus wields. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Listen to this. It says, Which he, God, brought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above... Do you see those words? Far above all principality. Principality is an authority. You remember being called to the principal's office, the head authority? He's far above even the principal. And power and might and dominion, that's borders and nations, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's a great description of high authority, isn't it? It doesn't get any higher than that. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. God is greater than government. God is greater than every ruler, every human law, even the laws of science and nature. He is the Lord of all. And when Jesus says all authority is given to me, he means all authority over everything that is. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, uh, sorry, it's... I might have given you the wrong thing. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, what is it? Verse 16. <laughs> it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by him 
and for him. And he is before all things. That means that he comes first. He has the preeminence. He is over it all. And by him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And then one more, because it's that good. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 concerning the authority of Christ. He says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Do you know in the Bible, customarily, to name someone or something means that you have authority over it? And if Jesus has a name that no one else can know, that means that no one gives him the name. It means that he's the highest authority. It says, In the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations." And he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh, not just on the outside, but written on the inside, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His authority is such that he is a kingmaker and he is a king breaker. And his authority is ultimate. It is universal, and it is final. And he calls you and I to not only submit ourselves under that authority, but to then move in the power of that authority. Meaning that it is not the government's role to give you permission to fulfill your part in the Great Commission, no matter what it might be. You don't need the approval of men. You don't need the appointment of a prophet or a pastor or a spiritual leader. You have been sent in the authority of Jesus Christ to bear fruit according as he has called you in his mission and in his commission. And thus we are to bend the knee to his authority. Now, sometimes to be under his authority means to be under man's authority. In marriage, in a godly government, you know, he tells us to do those things, we're submit. But sometimes to be under his authority means that we need to disobey man's authority. When God gives you something to do and somebody tells you you can't, what did Peter say? He said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And here's what you got to know is that submission determines power. Where you bend the knee determines the power and where your power comes from. Do you realize that Jesus violated the code of the culture, of the government, and of the ethics of his time. And that's why he was ultimately crucified. But yet it tells us that it, when he did it, prior to his crucifixion, no one dared touch him because of the power that he possessed. We read of in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they disobeyed the command of the king to honor and obey God and because the authority of God was with them, they were set free in the fire and they didn't even want to leave the situation they were in and no one dared even come into the fire. They had to call them out. We see Peter being imprisoned because he was obedient to what God called him to do and yet even in that imprisonment, he was set free from it by God because the authority of God is higher than the authority of men. We must settle the issue in our hearts who it is that we serve, and then we must stay in that position. That's what it means to root in. We decide whose authority we're under, and then we live here. Here's the sum of what we are called to do. If you want to know where your place is, and if you want to be fruitful in this commission, you need to get in. You need to hear the call that this is the mission, should you choose to accept it. You need to move on, move out. You need to go. You need to keep going. God even God cannot lead a motionless object. And if you're going to discover, if you're going to grow and go, then you've got to be moving. Number three, you've got to grow up. Develop excellence in everything that God has given to you. Don't fall asleep. Don't become stagnant where you are. And then number four, you've got to root in. Submit yourself to his authority and look 
only to him. In closing, I want to make a statement, and that is this, is that this mission that Jesus has given to you and I, it is a possible mission. Jesus invited us. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That was a call for each one of us. And the yoke was a personally fitted instrument that was given and made for each individual person. And you need to know that God knows you. He made you. He gave you what he gave you. And should you choose to accept his mission, he has something for you. It is fitted for you. And where you are right now in your life or in your walk with Christ may not be where you're going. It may not be the place that he has for you, but you've got to keep moving in that direction. And here is the promise. If you keep going, I promise you this. It's the promise of the word, and I will declare it to you in the name of Jesus, is that you will come to the place where you declare his faithfulness, where you will say, Lord, I doubted you, just like some of them doubted. I thought maybe I was the exception to the rule that you didn't really have a plan for my life, but I promise you this. Keep going, and you will come to the place where you will declare his faithfulness. Lord, you keep every single one of your promises. Even if right now maybe you're in a season where you are very discontent in some of the things that you're going through and taking you through, and you can't see how God is going to lead you through it or where it's going to end, it will go well for you. And then finally, I want to ask you a question. And this is a searching, challenging question, but you've got to ask. It's going to hurt, but I want you to ask yourself this question. What is the mission statement of your life? Not what should it be, not what do you want it to be, but what is the mission statement of your life? If someone were to follow you around for a month, and they were to say, based on what I have observed in this person's life, this is their mission statement, what would it be? I was talking to one mother right before the service, and I asked that question, and she said, ha, to keep my little people alive. That's what they'd say. You know, someone else said, to keep my house clean. That's what they would say. But I wonder for some, if maybe, if you were honest, the mission statement, you'd say, well, to do as little as I can and get as much in return. That's my mission. That's what I want to do. It might be that for some. For some, honestly, if you say the mission statement of my life, it, it might be to get through life with no risk, no pain, no loss, no sacrifice, and absolute control over everything that happens around me and to me. And you'd say, someone would look on and say that, yeah, that's, that's the mission for their life. But for every one of us tonight, there's a place to apply what we've heard and what Jesus is saying to us. For some that are listening right now, you need to dive in. You need to realize that this is God and that he's called you in this generation for such a time as this. And he has given something to you that no one else can do. And he's not going to force you to do it. But life is found in embracing the mission that he has for you. And the call is for you to dive in, to say, yes, God, whatever your plan is, not my will for my life, but your will for my life. And if that's you tonight, please Hear and heed the voice of Jesus. Say yes to the mission that he's placed to you. For others, you may, it may be to move out. You need to go. You need to do something. You've become stagnant. You've become stale. You've lost a sense of purpose. You've lost a sense of motion. You've fallen asleep in the place where you are. It was only supposed to be a short stay, but it has become a long camp out. And it's not the will of God for you at this time. You need to go forward in the things of God. For some of you, you need to grow. You need to get back into the Bible. Get back into the Word of God. Get back into listening to messages and reading books and developing your gifts and becoming excellent at things that you have let go dormant. Because he's going to use every one of those things in ways that you can't imagine and that you'll never be able to figure out. And for some, it means to bend the knee in the right place and to set your eyes higher, to submit yourselves to the word of God, to the word of God. I was watching last night with my kids. We were watching an interview with a man whose name was Yuri Bezmenov. And he was a KJB defector. He defected from the Soviet Union in 1970. 
He went to Canada first, and then he ended up in America. And in 1984, he was interviewed about what he experienced and what he learned as a KJB member whose agenda was to bring the whole world under communist rule. And he said the number one thing, the number one thing that we did and that we sought to do in the world to spread Marxism and Leninism and Stalinism is that we brought idealistic subversion. And the interviewer said, could you explain exactly what that means? You know, idealistic subversion. And he said, ah, it's very simple. It is moving people from a place where they stand upon rock-solid ideals and we subvert it. We move them from a place of standing on something solid to the place where they can never come to right conclusions. And he said the United States of America was the supreme target because it was built upon ideals that were stable. Okay, marriage between a man and a woman, the strength of the family unit, the freedom of life and choice, all of those things. And he said that what we have done, what they did and what we have done is we have infiltrated education systems and we have brought idealistic subversion. We have moved people off of the foundation of truth and we've made them question truth. Maybe this is good, maybe it's not. Maybe this is true, maybe it's not. Maybe this is righteous, maybe it's not. And we have brought that subversion into their ideals. The only protection that you and I have in this life right now is that we stand upon the ideals of God's word. That we do not allow ourselves to question whether or not what he says is true or whether or not this is the way to go. We stand upon what he said, and if I don't like it, I conclude that the problem is with me, not with the word. If I don't believe it, I conclude that the problem is with me and not with the word. If I don't understand it, I conclude that the problem is with me and not with the word. I have set my anchor in his authority. And when you do that, you then walk in the power of his authority. And for some, it's to come back to that place where you say, God, I have drifted in my ideals, in my belief. And tonight, I bend the knee to you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we consider this call, as we conclude our study of the Gospel of Matthew, as we have seen and examined and walked through your kingdom, as you, the king, introduced it, and as we now hear your call for our lives to commit ourselves and accept the mission that you have grant, given. Lord, we ask tonight that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to see ourselves as a part of your kingdom, to receive the call and the yoke that you have placed upon our shoulders, and to walk with you in the place and in the way that you've chosen. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us your presence, your continual guidance? And would you help us to make the adjustments that are necessary that we might fulfill your call? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.